0: Every day when I wake up, it seems as if a new streaming service has been birthed into the world. Sometimes it's an incredibly niche service, one that doesn't make the front page of The Verge. Other times it's a streaming service that's geared for mass appeal, think CBS All Access or HBO Max. But let me tell you, Anybody who's been paying attention, or trying to in my case, knows that the battles occurring amongst these OTT platforms are complicated. And that's quite an oversimplification. Everyone is aware that traditional cable linear television will soon be a thing of the past. Streaming is the future. But of course, this timeline has been accelerated by COVID. Netflix earned itself 25 million new paid subscribers in the first half of 2020 thanks to the pandemic. Streaming consumption across all video options is up more than 74% from last year. Now, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime Video, HBO Max, These OTT platforms are competing for more than just the title of Most Subscribed SVOD. They're vying to be the go-to centralized hub for streaming content, a one-stop shop. This means that the politics at play between these streaming giants gets incredibly complex, but also deeply fascinating when you dive into the strategies being employed by each platform in their mission to dominate this market. To help us break down what's happening behind the scenes of the streaming video wars we're witnessing today, I'm excited to bring you this conversation with Caroline Gigerich. Caroline has led strategy and activation, and management roles at HBO and Showtime, and has consulted for Netflix and Paramount. I quite literally could not think of anybody who I'd more want to have this conversation with than Caroline. And boy does she deliver. Enjoy. It's so great to have Caroline Gigerich here with us today to really talk about OTT platforms, this incredibly competitive space, and a space that with quarantine, as you can imagine, I feel like there's more chatter about than there ever has been. Um, And Caroline, uh, it's great to have you.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm still basking in the glow of you saying my name right. Not often that happens for me.
0: There was some practice. It was in the mirror, just repeating it endlessly, uh, and I got it. Thank you. I, I wanted it to be effortless, but
1: don't worry, I do the same practice myself
0: <laughs> beforehand. Great for any intro of any sort. You just got to make sure you have it down. Um, That's right. Well, awesome, Caroline. So you know, obviously, I just gave that little prelude, and I feel like there are very few people I'm connected to who have more expertise of this specific facet of this industry as you do. So could you speak a little bit about your experience and your years within this space?
1: Sure. So I have been in entertainment for about 15 years. I started um, at HBO working in a variety of marketing roles from direct response, brand marketing for HBO On Demand, I ended my time there um, in what was called emerging technology, which was kind of like a hodgepodge of all sorts of digital video and tech. Um, from there, I actually went agency side for a little while, where I ran innovations um, at a media agency called Initiative, primarily because Lionsgate was one of their bigger, biggest clients. So that was more on the movie side, obviously, but my entertainment background was really helpful. Um, I spent several years as a marketing consultant working for Paramount Digital, did some program marketing for Netflix and some other companies. And then my my last full time role was at Showtime, where I was marketing director on an OTT streaming platform for Marriott and Hilton Hotels.
0: Wow. Um, So again, I'll reiterate uh, a lot of credibility to this subject uh, in short, but um, you know, I I feel right now it's it's so interesting because you obviously have been in the space for a while and anybody who's paid attention to the quarterly reports of any of these companies has seen the obvious, which is during quarantine, oh my God, how things have proliferated almost Mm -hmm. overwhelmingly. But of course, you know, there was a lead up to this and you were really a part of that lead up of, you know, there was a heavy investment by these companies knowing that, all right, uh, subscription video on demand, this is really going to be uh, the next iteration of what we provide. So I guess, can you speak to that evolution and how rapid it must've been for you to go from, all right, this is something we're exploring to, okay, this undoubtedly, is the future of viewing content.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was still at HBO when video started coming online, ad supported by networks like ABC. I mean, in essence, I wouldn't say that video executives were smarter. It was actually more causal in the sense of they were watching the music industry get decimated by their lack of innovation early on And as a result, video executives were a little quicker to move into the video marketplace. But still, you could say, you know, Netflix came on strong early on and media companies took their time, even with, you know, you've still got media companies rolling out their services just now. So, um It's it's been a long time coming since what that must have been like 2006 or seven when video first went online Insane.
0: Yeah, the days of going to NBC's website and trying to find an old video that was aired, I guess a while ago Yeah, it was interesting. Obviously it has existed in some form or another but you know as you talk about Netflix being so early, of course, there's a first movers advantage there and now when we talk about streaming i think even that word is sort of just synonymous with netflix so obviously for anybody in and out of this industry they look as netflix as the north star of okay this is everything that this is supposed to be this is how people are supposed to think about it what do you think led to netflix's status as okay this is the preeminent platform is it just them being so early or were there other things that they've had going for them and other innovations that they've constantly worked on in order to get here?
1: Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, number one, Netflix has been spending more on programming for a very long time. And um, some would say that that's their key advantage from any other media company they don't have the same weight to throw around that kind of programming budget like Netflix does. The other thing I think Netflix has always done really well is access their data effectively. I mean, that comes down to things like manipulating key art so that you, Dylan, see one thing and I see another thing for the same title, but. It's what Netflix believes, from former experience, would make us most likely to click on said title. And that amount of personalization is unreal. I mean, the amount of A-B testing they have been doing for years when other streaming platforms didn't have the capabilities to do so has made them the juggernaut that they are today in terms of how fast they roll out new features. And you know, I know you. You mentioned a few of them. They they run very intelligent tests, and based on the results of those tests, they roll it out far and wide. But on any given day, I don't know what it is today, but I I could hazard a guess that hundreds upon hundreds of A/B tests are going on in Netflix every single day, based on even minute things like parts of the metadata. So, like if you watch Queen's Gambit, but you, Dylan were more engaged in things like the chess play, and I was more engaged in the costume design. Netflix creepily knows that, and so is offering recommendations based on their algorithm, knowing what we both find interesting in that one title, but that are very separate and personalized to each one of us.
0: Wow. Yeah. And it's so interesting, too, because think about the social dilemma. And it's all this, oh, my God, we need to be so cognizant of the data that we're giving to these companies. Obviously, that realization is data that's being given to a company to influence their decisions. Um, But it is interesting. And, you know, I think that's something we've talked about endlessly here is, the importance that data will always play. And that goes so far beyond, as you said, it's not a binary, you watch this, you didn't watch this, therefore. But are you noticing these other platforms go about it with the same strategy of, you know, if in 2020 um, and maybe going into 2021, that's Netflix's approach is, hey guys, we really want our algorithm to be unbelievably sophisticated. Is that really the key focus for every one of these platforms? Peacock, HBO Max, you know, every single one, Hulu. Are they going about it the same exact way with their key focus? Or are you noticing that in order to get to the top, certain platforms are taking different approaches to really attract more subscribers?
1: Yeah, I think they are taking different approaches. I also don't think that they have quite the extensive infrastructure in place that Netflix has with the years of advanced development that they have. I mean, just to give you an example, if I were at Showtime and I needed an update in a feature, you know, I'm going in to talk to a a team that's been staffed to a certain size that's nowhere near a Netflix size product dev team. And so my request in the overall scope of everything that that product team is being asked to do may be insignificant based on their priorities. Whereas Netflix, which with its more massive budget, um, heftier price tag paid to, to their executives, has the resources to take those things on. So even if you were, say, in HBO Max, like HBO Max is trying to quickly compete with um additional content that they're pulling in from all different avenues so they can have a kind of content lab library that will compete but they also want the data so that they can get smart about how they run their algorithm how they run their user interface and that's why for instance you don't see them on roku because that is the issue that roku and hbo max which is about ad inventory and data ownership and HBO Max is is holding their ground. And Roku considering, you know, how many streaming users they own is certainly holding their ground because they don't wanna be what the cable company became over time, which is just like a pipe for video.
0: Yeah, um, and you bringing that up, you know, it, it is insane. Roku, this is, I am, I'm not so smart I know this, I'm reading off something right now, but Roku has 46 million users, giving it an estimated 30% of the streaming device market, and I think that's what's been so interesting too, and uh, this is something else I've been so excited to ask you about in this podcast, but, you know, as you can imagine, in the YouTube space, um, of course things get very complex, and there are politics and weird dynamics at play that you constantly need to account for, but... That uh, cannot even hold a candle to the very interesting dynamics at play with these OTT platforms and how they kind of allow others to, whether it's be on an Amazon Fire TV stick or whether that's Roku, you know, what kind of push and pull needs to be done there. So, um, yeah, I guess I'd want to get your thoughts on how some of these platforms are playing nicely or hyper competitively with one another.
1: Yeah, I mean, the two holdouts are Peacock and HBO Max, although HBO Max is now offered on Amazon Fire. But the the issue is the same across the board. Um, It's all about the data, but also the ad inventory, because HBO Max supposedly in 2021 is going to come out with an Avod product, so which just to, to pause and say, like blows my mind as a former HBO employee.
0: <laughs> In what way, if, if you don't mind elaborating?
1: I, I mean, I'll, I'll just say that, you know, it, towards the end of my tenure, we um, came to the senior executives of HBO with a ad-supported platform um, that had quite a bit of use, and they laughed at us. Like that ad-supported business is from for what I understand the brand ethos of HBO to be, which has significantly changed in the advent of HBO Max, completely different than the premium video outlet that I that I, I know from my history.
0: Wow. Um, that is very interesting. Thank you for divulging that uh, that little bit there of your experience of what's happening behind the scenes. But <laughs> sure. um, yeah, and you it brings up another interesting point, though, is how does advertisement play into the future here? Um, because I think anytime there has been any conversation about integrating ads, and I know some do. I think Hulu has a lot of ads, even if you pay. I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. Um, and it exists in some other forms and some other platforms. but how do you see the future of advertising on OTT platforms? Because it obviously is not going to play out as a traditional, you know, you go to watch a uh, some show on MTV in the year two thousand five, and you have your very structured commercial breaks that the user seems to be just perfectly content with.
1: Yeah, well, I actually saw, somebody posted this on LinkedIn today about the effects of COVID on the the ad uh, market, the advertising market, and pretty much everything across the board was down. Though, since you're on the social media influencer side, you'll be happy to know that social media was one of the only things that were up. The three things that were up and showed promise for 2021 were social media, online video and online display, which must be a result of like additional e-commerce behavior. Um, But online video was the fastest growing segment supposedly forecasted for 2021. And That's interesting to me because 2020, of course, you think of as the year of COVID. So you're like, of course, people are home. They're watching more streaming video and consumption patterns are through the roof. But what this seemingly is is foreshadowing is that 2021 will continue to see exponential growth by advertisers in online video. And I think... That has less to do with consumption patterns, although they will stay strong, but it will have a lot to do with advertiser expectations around what kind of data they're getting when they're doing their advertising, which simply put, obviously, they do not get from linear television, though they do get from connected TV and OTT. So I think those are the reasons why, as an advertiser, in a year when you have a pandemic, the first budget that gets cut is the budget that's to, towards what's called top of the funnel, which is your awareness marketing, because people think, well, you know, we can cut that, but we need all the budget for lower funnel, which is the action oriented marketing, i.e. the stuff that makes the sales, you know? So in a world where eh, it's not awareness isn't as important right now, and you're going to bottom of the funnel direct response, That means all that data is really important because you need to see exactly how many people convert into sales. Less about like these big TV budgets which get you awareness but you don't have as much data on. Wow and
0: I mean why this blows my mind a little bit is I I always think about you know the top of funnel strategies and you know uh, how they may differ from the DR strategies. And Mm -hmm. what's so interesting about what you bring up is, of course, uh, of what I've read, and as we've talked about, it's super confusing, but, okay, this is why uh, these platforms really want to make sure they have their data. My brain always goes to, that's because they want to make sure that they can get the right algorithm choices to keep their users engaged. And while that's true... What you're saying is something I've never even thought of, which is so true, is, oh no, that actually gives them incredible negotiating power to really broker some very strong deals with advertisers because they have access to the data. So it's very interesting you saying this. Again, something I really hadn't thought of, but that's really where you see 2021 advertising on OTT platforms is really going to be around. Hey, look, we can show you the conversions that this leads to on, uh, on a Netflix.
1: And it, and it leaves advertisers feeling more confident. I have to imagine, I don't work at a media agency, but I have to imagine media agencies are happy because they can show all the graphs and charts and such that make people feel confident that they're spending their dollars accurately. But it's also why it's fascinating to me how all of these streaming platforms are reporting As, you know, even in our pre-conversations, you know, looking at how an HBO Max reports versus a Netflix reports, there's clearly some creative math going on, which is also about making investors feel happy and in securing the stock price. But it's also very creative math,
0: (laughs) No. For, for listeners, we, we had a back and forth over email of, okay, what is the ranking for the most subscribed uh, OTT platforms? And it's very hard to know this information because, you know, some will have just completely different metrics for what they count as a subscriber or viewers or viewers within a certain window. So it's incredibly confusing. But regardless... I guess there does seem to be somewhat of a clear hierarchy um where you can kind of sense okay Netflix might be at the peak of the mountain here and some of the other ones like CBS All Access or maybe the even more niche ones like I don't know Shudder or Crunchyroll mm-hmm. you know are maybe more at the bottom so if that's where it stands right now i guess what do you think it's going to take for those at the bottom to really work their way up is it going to be continuing to focus on a niche something like crunchyroll or nfl sunday ticket or do you imagine that some of these pla- some of these uh, ott platforms that have far less subscribers than an hbo max or a hulu they're gonna have to go into a totally different strategy if they want even the slightest shot at competing.
1: Yeah, it's, I I feel like this is is a tough thing to answer because I think people are starting to feel streaming service exhaustion already, you know, which is a result of so many different streaming services and choices. It used to be the idea of going to a streaming platform would save you money on your cable bill. But now, especially in my particular space and my colleagues of media professionals, that is definitely not the, the case. They are subscribing to all of these things. And even if they are a cord cutter, they're now spending more money than they used to. The market usually follows the rest of, you know, media executives in the same behavior. And people are going to start to feel burnt out. The other thing, just harkening back to something you said early on, is you mentioned, <laughs> on abc.com you had trouble finding things well the the issue with online video search is still big in this space today with no one really solving it but a whole bunch of people trying to like comcast x1 infinity or google or apple tv they're all trying to get at it but the reason they're all trying to get at it is because if you can be the central hub just like the cable company or the satellite provider was before for all video, well then you become more necessary to the end user. So that's something that I think these companies are trying to solve. Like you see Google TV trying to solve it. They wanna be the home of video. Um, You see Apple trying to solve it. And you see cable companies trying to get back in there and solve it because it's it's all about owning the subscriber. Um, in terms of the the little guys and what they can do, I mean, I feel like there's a ceiling, especially for the more niche services, because they are niche long tail services, which means th- they cap out at a certain number of subscribers because of the fact that they are niche, which is fine. That's just fine as long as they are keeping their content cost low, their infrastructure low, and they have enough subscribers to sustain themselves. They don't need to be a Netflix to be profitable. They just need to keep their acquisition cost of each customer low and keep the infrastructure and content lower and thus pull out more value.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I think to that, there is a ceiling, but as long as they're really super serving that audience, things will probably be more or less okay, as I think we've seen the case with most of these. Um, you know, I, I know uh, Crunchyroll subscribers, I know Shutter subscribers, and I think a lot of the time, it isn't always a given that they have Netflix or Hulu as well. But um, to, I guess, the end game you were talking about of those biggest players. So really the philosophy of most of these guys or most of these companies that are trying to find ways to aggregate Um, these different platforms, is to really be the centralized location. Is that sort of what you're saying? That it's going to be, all right, I I go down on my TV and I trust Apple in order for me to look through all of my different content offerings across everything I subscribe for. I guess almost ironically, not too dissimilar to cable packages.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right because... It's like, it reminds me of this salad place that was across the street from HBO. And it's on uh, 42nd and 6th Avenue, the old HBO building before they moved to Hudson Yards. And if anyone knows anything about that part of New York, it's busy. And during the lunch rush, it's not like that you could stand there in line and be like, eh, I think I want tomatoes and maybe I'll get some pumpkin seeds. No, no, they are like, 10 angry New Yorkers behind you, and you better make some choices about that salad very quickly, right? Like, it was the most stressful part of my day. I hated going there, and I would only go there if somebody made me go. And so it reminds me of that in the sense of people like these prepackaged. As much as they say they want a la carte content, the reality is most people don't have that much time in their day to say, okay, okay. I want this exact thing, and then I want that exact thing, and then I want that exact thing. What they really want is for someone to say, Dylan, okay, you like all of these things. So we think you should have this, 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 this. So think about the cable package of some random channels they give to everybody, and think about like a new reality in which it's like Dylan personalized, right? Like land of the future, like Dylan personalized channels. Yes. You know, like if you trusted the algorithm that was giving you that information, and it gave it to you at a value that you felt was appropriate, you'd buy it. And I think that's what most people want. They want something they know that if they're, you know, a a family with children, satisfies their kids, satisfies them, but doesn't break the bank, so to speak. And right now, we've got like all these disaggregated choices, like I work in entertainment and I sometimes forget what platform what is on or that something is even on at the moment it's on anyway. So it's confusing, it's complex, there's too many choices. And I think that needs to be figured out for people like Netflix definitely wants to be the hub of your everything. And they are Providing solutions to keep you in Netflix land for as long as they can, either serving you the shuffle feature to just keep like, you know, throwing things in front of you, or, um, you know, <laughs> launching that like TikTok-like feature so you start adding things to your your watch list. Like this is Netflix getting really creative with how do we keep them here? How do we keep them there? Because they want to be the one stop shop
0: yeah and just as we were speaking about earlier um you know netflix has done more than just being such a you know first mover advantage here to really ensure that they're going to be the monolith that they now are in november 2020 as we speak um and to those creative offerings that they're giving consumers um, I know the one we just talked about was the shuffle, but you know, even, uh, outside of the U S there's some really interesting ones. I know we talked over email about in India, there being a, a mobile only offering. Um, so clearly Netflix is trying to think of every different creative way to offer what is outside of the norm of, I guess, an OTT platform offering. Um, where do you see that really leading, I guess, for Netflix or for other platforms? Do you anticipate there being many different approaches of, okay, this is our platform, uh, in order to get people to really stay engaged? Because, you know, frankly, if I go to Netflix now, I go to Hulu now, it more or less seems like the same interface with the same offerings, you know, some different bundling, some different pricings, but doesn't seem like any platform, uh, at least of the major ones, are all too dissimilar from one another.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I think what Netflix is doing right now is getting really smart about its globalization efforts. I mean, I think that is a big strategy for them going into 2021. You mentioned the, the test that they're doing in India, which really disseminated from the fact that they saw that a lot of Indian consumers were watching video primarily on their mobile screens. I don't think that that has yet progressed here in the United States, but I think that they are looking at it in areas where they feel like it makes sense. Even the fact that they're doing that shows how far and away ahead they are from the rest of the pack. Exactly. Because some of these services like Hulu, for instance, are domestic only brands. So they don't even have you know, at least for Hulu, that there's no globalization there. But then another test I saw that simply almost blew my mind was in France. They were testing a linear feed of Netflix because I
0: saw this. French yeah.
1: consumers <laughs> liked that sort of channel concept. That's how they liked to consume content. So I think the first thing you saw was Netflix getting smarter about their content choices in global markets And rather than just throwing like, you know, the Queen's Gambit up in wherever, I've now mentioned it twice, I love it that much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You and everyone else in fairness, uh, given the
1: numbers. It's true, it's making chess players out of all of us. But, you know, they're not trying to repurpose the same content in all of these different markets, but they're instead trying to look at culturally the differences between these people, both in their content preferences and their consumption patterns, and personalizing the platform based on that, do I think others will follow? I think other platforms have to get to the place where they can, you know, start rolling out globally one. But I think that services do do this to some capacity. Like for instance, when I was at HBO, with obviously it was a long time ago, I was blown away to learn that in the beginning of my tenure there, which started in 2005, that so many people were watching HBO because of the movies. Now, just to take you back in time, this was during the time of Sex in the City and The Sopranos, Sopranos. like some really big pieces of content. And I'm like, who's watching HBO for the movies? Well, it turns out uh, the vast middle of the country was watching HBO for the movies and didn't particularly care for original content so that was a way in which you know entertainment companies such as hbo even back then were tailoring their marketing messages couldn't tailor the linear feed for instance or the um, hbo on demand but they could tailor their marketing messages to more effectively reach those consumers but what hbo max can do now is serve up content choices based on where those people live so like even in you know Thinking about how we engage customers in um, a streaming platform, we would provide a carousel that was customized to who we thought we were talking to, to make it as sticky an experience as possible. So there's a lot of like fine tuning they're doing that probably you wouldn't even notice. Um, but w- what's a really interesting experiment is to start to look at how, say, your Main page and recommendations vary so drastically from mine. Where is their overlap? Specifically Where yours, Carolyn's, yes. Or anybody else's. Yes, yes. Right? Anybody else's. And I heard, I'm sorry, another podcast, but <laughs> Land of the Giants did a whole Netflix season. And my favorite episode, I tell everyone, is uh, Did the Algorithm Make You Watch Tiger King?, in which the two um, podcast announcers start two Netflix feeds from scratch and they talk about what they're being recommended over time and how it transpires, if it's accurate or not. And that's fascinating because that is the journey of a new customer in their environments.
0: Yeah. Wow. And now I have to think back. Did I watch Tiger King because the algorithm served it to me? But po- probably. Um, which it's funny, too. I, I think now um, one of the most misleading, I think deliberately, is uh, the Netflix. It says, because you watched X. And it's like, oh no, no, they're they're acting as if, oh, just because you watched this show, we think you'll like this. No, they know when you went to use the bathroom and they know probably <laughs> what snacks you're eating. Like it is so much more sophisticated than that.
1: Yeah, well, and those those are also different, right? Because like it's analyzing, what did you watch before this? What do you binge? What do you not binge? You know, how what time of day do you typically watch? Well, depending on the time of day, does it show that Dylan is in a particular mood versus like if he's watching at like Sunday at two a.m. Like, what mood is Dylan in? What 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 can we predict about Dylan? Like, I, I often think of the the uh, the piece the social dilemma when they have the the guy and they're kind of like behind the scenes talking about what what they think. Right. I'm like, that's what all media companies are like. <laughs> 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 that's really. I mean, they have some fancy data science, but they're all doing exactly the same thing in their own environments to try to keep people watching.
0: Yeah, uh, it's not just Facebook. It's it's absolutely everyone. Um,
1: it's everyone.
0: Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting when you bring up, uh, you know, there's binging, and then I know specifically for that French linear television Netflix offering, I think that's because of the older population and the older population really appreciates being able to watch linear TV. So, you know, it's interesting, especially when you consider Gen Z is, I think there was a report that was like Gen Z and Gen Y, which today I learned that's what they're, I thought it was Gen Alpha. I guess there's all new names for the the lowest one, but anyways, <laughs> I'm learning some things. <laughs> exactly. But, um, that they are, you know, exponentially more likely to binge a show than a millennial or Gen X or a baby boomer. So. I guess how with that in mind, Um, you know, there's two examples right there. One of Netflix uh, changing things for a specific region in order to offer things for the older population. And then conversely, you know, all these other platforms want there to be bingeable content. So Gen Z will come excitedly to their platform and finish an entire series in a day. So are you noticing there being different approaches based on targeting the older demographic versus based on, all right, how can we, a Netflix, a Hulu, and HBO Max, how can we ensure that we have the eyeballs of, say, Gen Z?
1: Well, and I'll give you another variable, which is at times the people who produce content aren't as excited about binging as the viewers are because they feel... And I'm only speaking to some population because I'm sure some producers are like, yeah, that's great. Watch the whole thing at once. But some, just like album creators, want there to be a respect of the content itself. They also want there to be a longer marketing window than sometimes a Netflix can offer. Right. So the other variable is that all of these companies are trying to satisfy the content creators in some way, which is in Netflix case, heavily to do with the amount of money they're spending. But then, you know, you've got these other media companies that that are trying to say, well, okay, we're going to do more for you in marketing and we're not going to do binge content. We're going to offer it in a window. So you get more PR over time. (laughs) So there's all these different variables outside of just like, delivering what the the end viewer wants, which makes it super complicated. And so if in a pure environment where none of that existed, it was just all about the users, I think you could figure out, um, generally speaking, which, which sort of shows aligned to those particular target segments and make them bingeable versus maybe content more appropriate for older audiences that make more sense rolled out in a windowing strategy, and maybe yes in France on the linear TV channel.
0: (laughs) Exactly, regardless of how counterintuitive that may seem to someone, you know, there is a strategy there, of course.
1: I mean, honestly, to me, it didn't seem too counterintuitive because I mean, even myself, sometimes I don't wanna have to think about what I'm gonna watch. I just want to turn on the Food Network and whatever baking show is there, I will watch it, right? Because like
0: forced into it, yeah.
1: I, d- I don't even care. Whatever is there, if it- it's holidays, it's baking, I will watch it versus, you know, sitting down and watching something from start to finish, which almost feels like at times a more investment of my energy versus like, let's say I had like 15 minutes to kill and relax. I'm not going to start like a Netflix show for instance. So I think it makes sense because I think the shuffle feature by Netflix is a somewhat like light version of that idea or why TikTok is popular in the first place, you know?
0: Exactly. And you know, it's funny when you bring up shuffle, you bring up TikTok. Uh, I think that leads into, uh, I think really one of the final topics I of course want to ask you about. Um, And I I imagine you can see where this is going, but there was a platform called Quibi um, and, you know, it did not work out as clearly they were expecting, but almost on paper, it did sound like, oh, wow, this is what people want. People like short form content. People like quality entertainment from a Netflix or from something that is just incredibly well-produced. So, um, I guess, where do you think things went wrong there? Because, you know, we talk about shuffling and almost other uh elements from you know TikTok, for example that a netflix is now adopting so clearly these platforms are seeing hey there is something there maybe quibi went a little bit too far in trying to bridge the gap between short form and long form but uh yeah i guess i've rambled here but what are your thoughts on the the topic uh, of quibi
1: someone turned me on to this guy named neil postman who some would call uh, anti-technology, but I think he was just a pragmatist. And his question to all new technology was, what problem is it solving? And with Quibi, the question is, was it solving a problem? For instance, six minutes of content, you could say that you could technically start a Netflix show, watch only six minutes on your subway ride to work, and then keep watching on your lunch break. And that would be your quibby, right? Um, The other thing is supposedly they were building content for younger audiences, but they were making them pay for that content. And for any of us in tune with younger audiences, we know they don't like to pay. In fact, most of them share passwords, usernames, all sorts of things years after college. So they're not gonna pay any amount for Quick bites. And then the final thing is, if you have, and I say this with all love and respect, I really do, because I think they are smart media executives. But if you have two people who are of a certain age deciding what content is appropriate for much younger audiences, and they don't have, you know, enough people around them to give them the kind of support and feedback necessary. Well, I think that's also an issue. Um, you know, it, it reminds me of all sorts of companies where you need to be able to speak truth to power, you know, and I'm sorry to go back to Netflix, but that's their whole strategy, Right. Like you're only as good as you were yesterday, which is a very scary philosophy to me, but also seems to breed this kind of environment where you're always requesting feedback because you know that you're only as good as your last greatest idea. And, and that's where I think Quibi went wrong. I will say one more thing, the the turn, what do they call it, turnstile?
0: Yeah, turnstile turn viewing, revolutionary. Oh my gosh,
1: the turnstile video. It's not like any of us were like dying to turn our 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 iPhones on its side and watch horizontal video, and to think about how much money was spent producing content simply for horizontal view is unfathomable to me. Um, so it it was a cacophony of problems, really. But I I do want to say it's it's honorable that they showed up and tried because obviously after it was announced that they were going away, it felt like the criticism was being piled on by people whose sole purpose in life is to criticize, but who haven't created anything. And so my, my only last line is it's really easy to criticize, but it's very difficult to create.
0: Completely, yeah and and to what you're saying though, what is the correct approach there? Clearly, Netflix, it is not uh, you know some executives who are out of touch when they are figuring out all right what content to produce here. Clearly, they have an expansive team that knows exactly how to really connect people with engaging content, really has their finger on the pulse of these demographics. Um, and so do you really attribute that then to, Uh, I guess just the budgets that we've talked that Netflix has. And do you really think that is the most important variable as we look into 2021? Is it just going to be who's going to have the best new content? And that is really what's going to dictate how many new subscribers a given platform gets? Or is it going to be something else that really could shake things up in the new year?
1: I think content it is still going to be the most important factor on the block. I don't see Netflix slowing down in terms of outspending everyone else as they have been doing um for quite a while. I think it will get more difficult for them in the sense of you've got other media companies that are starting to get wise to Netflix in the sense of you know, take take a show like The Office which for years has done incredible numbers for Netflix, but that's an NBC property. Well, NBC is now getting smart to that. And in 2021, it will go away if you I, 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 I sent this to you. I really like this Nielsen's new streaming list. I like it because it gives a, a peer behind the curtain, because for so long, we've just been subject to whatever Netflix wants to tell us, which is all about their PR machine. And not really about the data itself. And now we have this outside source that's comparing some platforms together, albeit on a very um, delayed timeline. But what it shows you, if you keep watching, you know, it's typically Netflix that's on top. it what it's showing you is it's a combination of its original content and content from a myriad of other studios. So as as <laughs> as long as. That content stays with Netflix. It will retain its stickiness, right? But when that starts to peel off, they're gonna have to continue and continue to re-add really highly engaging content to fill the void. Because that stuff, I mean, the office, wait, I pulled this, is number two for the week of October 26th to November 1st. The number one position is the Queen's Gambit. Um, number three was Disney plus the Mandalorian. That makes sense. And number four is also not a Netflix title. It's Shits Creek, which is pop TV or Viacom CBS. So you start to see these, these patterns of many of these titles in the top 10 are not Netflix owned. And as soon as those things go away, Netflix is going to have to work even harder. Do I think that's the only story? No. Um, I think these... AVOD platforms are interesting. You know, the, the fast TV platforms, I think they're interesting. Um, I'm waiting to see what they are at continuously able to do. Um, I'm interested to see HBO Max launch into AVOD and what that's able to do for that platform. Um, and how the pricing is structured for the premium ad free I, I mean, I think there's gonna be a lot of shifts in this space and it'll be really interesting to watch.
0: Yeah, and especially with HBO Max, as you planted the AVOD seed way back when, when you were there, given the uh, anecdote you, ha, sure, ha, you shared ha, ha,
1: I wish that was true.
0: <laughs> I'm sure they will attribute it to you in, in some fashion, but. Um, Please do. <laughs> God, well, awesome. Caroline, I, I guess before we wrap up here, is there anything else you want to plug or make mention of that we haven't been able to touch on thus far?
1: I have to throw in that I firmly believe that connected fitness is part of the SBOD landscape, Um, you know, platforms like Peloton and Mirror. I think even after COVID is over, I think this idea of fitness tainment is here to stay and how at how large that becomes remains to be seen. But I think it's a very interesting space to watch.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to have my eye out. Uh, And God, that's a whole nother topic in of itself. So if you ever want to come back, I think that'll be the (laughs) next thing you and I tackle.
1: We'll have to do a Peloton workout together. That'll be the (laughs)
0: podcast. (laughs) Exactly. No one wants to hear me do that. Um, Well, awesome. Caroline, again, thank you so much. This was uh, so informative.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tube Circuit. Please subscribe for more deep dives and interviews on the direction of digital media.